All right, James chapter 4. What's going on? This is a biblical pathology of reality. This is a, a diagnosis all the way to the source. We're living in a world that is uh, frighteningly uh, disconnected and divisive. Verbal abuse, physical abuse, fighting, conflict. I mean, we're about to, and I hope you're praying about Tuesday's election. I know we don't hang all our hopes on political solutions, but I'm hoping for some merciful reprieve, uh, at least for a season, to allow the liberties that I have come to enjoy. I'm old enough to know America that looks different than the one I'm living in, and I know I'm salt, I know I'm light, I know I don't have, uh, I'm not, I, I know I have influence, uh, I know I have hope. I know that we're important, strategically important. We're tactically sown like seed into the culture and into your community. And we have potential, powerful potential. But man, I hope God gives us grace in this next election so that we at least have some common sense where there seems to be none. And some measure of conscience. Um, I know we're under judgment. I don't disagree with that. I just pray that God will be gracious like he was to the Ninevites. And uh, if it requires sackcloth and ashes, I'm in. Um, Because we need it. My grandson, I'd like him to taste America. And I'm sure you feel that way for your children and grandchildren. But this is the answer. This is why. So James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 is going to give you a biblical pathology of what's going on. The summary of what's going on, the source of the conflict, is what I'm going to call worldliness. Worldliness. What is, verse 1, James 4, what is the source? So it's not just a symptom, it's a source. What is the source of the quarrels and the conflicts among you? The verbal wars and the physical and natural altercations. What is it? And then he's going to tell you, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Is that not the source? Is that not the cause? I uh, want to read this to you just by way of beginning. Just pause right there. Look up. We're coming back to the Bible. I didn't read all of these last week, but I was surprised at the number of philosophers that validated their awareness of this source issue in humanity. Plato, the sole source of wars and revolutions and battles is nothing other than the body, the human body, and its desires. Cicero, Roman historian, it is insatiable desire which overturn not only individual men, but overturn whole families, and which even bring down the state. From desires there spring hatred, schisms, discord, seditions, and wars. Listen to this claim. Desire is at the root of all the evils which ruin life and divide men. What is the source? Is it not your pleasures? Comes from the word hedonistic, hedonai. Is it not the appetite for pleasure? Is it not the pleasures that wage war in your members? So there's an internal member war, you, the depravity of your humanity, stimulated by the world and the God of this world, and there's 
enmity even in the members of your family, even the spiritual family. Here's the process. You lust, that strong desire. When you read lust, it's always you think, oh, this is horrible, this is negative, it's the darkest kind of shameful passion. That's not what this word means. The word lust is epithumia, it is strong desire. It's strong desire, it's passion. Is it not that passion and strong desire? And you do not have. So you have a desire for something, you can't obtain it, so you commit murder, which means you're willing to do whatever it takes in order to acquire what it is you believe you need. It's a desire problem that is driving behavior that says, I need this and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get this. You are envious and cannot obtain. You want what you don't have. Somebody else has it. You want it, and you can't get it. You're frustrated. So you fight, and you quarrel. In other words, you utilize human means to acquire what you believe you need to have to secure the life that is in your view, bound up in that thing or that person or that experience or that position. The big idea in this passage has to do with the desires that are damaging and destructive, not because you have them, but by the mode in which you seek to obtain them and the idolatrous position in which you place them. As if, if I don't have this, I'm not going to live. Therefore, I'm willing to kill to get whatever this is. I'm willing to harm you. I'm willing to hurt you. I'm willing to fight with you because you deny me what I believe is necessary for life. I want to remind you, this is written to God's people who ought to know that there is a source of life, and that source of life is not in any possession or any person other than the living God and the life that He gives. Can you say amen to that? All right, now I'm I'm asking you to say amen because I want you to agree with that. Because that's true. And what handicaps our humanity and the relationships that we enjoy in it, including those in the body of Christ, is a distraction to something that can't provide it that we somehow come to believe is necessary for it, life. So when my spouse doesn't deliver what it is I think I need as a man or as a woman, or my children don't provide what I believe they ought to provide me, I get angry. I get frustrated. If somebody I work with prevents me, inhibits, or creates a barrier for me for the thing I deserve, my boss doesn't elevate me, the raise doesn't come, the, uh, the opportunity to play the game or be in the game if I'm an athlete is denied me because somebody beats me out or because the coach fails to recognize what he should be able to see. Play me. Hire me. Elevate me. Meet my needs. At the heart of our humanity, the source of the conflict, whether it's a war, nation to nation, you look at Putin, Russia, the Ukraine, you look at your house, your city, your community, your country, it's this. It's a damaging, destructive desire rooted 
and a delusion that obtaining that thing will be life for me. And I'm willing to do what it takes because it's denied me. Verse 3 says, you ask and you do not, you, or excuse me, the end of 2, I don't want to skip that. You do not have because you do not ask. Ask who? God. You don't have it because God alone gives the life that satisfies the desires. And the things necessary for that, He sovereignly controls. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, chapter 1, in whom there is no variation, no shadow of turning. He's a good, generous, big, loving Father every day. And the reason you don't have the life you long for is because you don't ask the source who has it. The living water. Remember the woman at the well? I referred to it last week. You've got five husbands. You're living with a guy who's not your husband. If you knew who I was, you would ask for me. Satisfying water. The solution to the thirst. The deep inward desire. You're a gerbil on a treadmill if you're chasing satisfaction through the mechanisms and the means that the world promises that you control because the heart of this issue is self-dependence versus God-dependence. Asking means I'm dependent upon you. Fighting and quarreling is I'm dependent on me. So you don't have because you do not ask the one who possesses it because you don't recognize that A, he is a generous giver every day And secondly, he's the only one who can provide what it is you're hungry for. What's going on? That's going on. Even in the body of Christ. Even at your house. Even at my house. Verse 3. And then you do ask, but you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. That is to say, the appetite is for you to acquire it for your own satisfaction. In other words, it is selfishly driven. The appetite is denied because of the motivations that drive the seeking it from from God. You may be praying, but you're asking amiss, is the King James translation, with Faulty desires. Listen to Matthew Henry. We may be sure that when prayers are rather the language of lusts rather than graces, they will be empty by way of God's answers. Our satisfaction comes as a byproduct of seeking God and trusting in God. They are not self-manufactured solutions. That's reality. That's why you have the book of Ecclesiastes. You can have it all, and it's not life-giving at all. You can have 700 wives and 300 concubines. You can have the wealth that wows everybody. You can have more horses than your neighbors. You can enjoy more homes than anybody on the planet. And it's vanity. Vanity is a Hebrew word which means it's like the elusive smoke 
from an extinguished candle. It just goes up and it evaporates. It's gone. You can't control it. You can't grasp it. And you can't keep it. That's reality. Who is the giver of life? God is the giver of life. He's the only supplier of the life that's truly life. That's what 1 Timothy 6 says. Don't chase money. Chase God who gives life as a byproduct of seeking a rich relationship in humble dependence on Him, living your life for His glory. That is reality. So let me bottom line about worldliness. Worldliness is dominated by pleasure that I believe is necessary for my satisfaction. Worldliness says, I'm going to get on my own, no matter the cost, what it is I believe I need, as opposed to trusting God and waiting on God for His provision and His solution. You cannot read the Bible and think God is some kind of genie in a bottle. You ask it, He instantly provides it. God is the source, and He governs it all. He provides the life you hunger for, the satisfaction of the thirst that is natural to your humanity. But He does it His way in His time, for His glory. And it's by asking, and it's by trusting. And the reason you don't have it is you're not dependent on Him for it. And when you're asking for it, somehow the, the source of life to you has been flipped. It's not God, it's this thing, or this person, or this place, or this privilege. What is the source of the conflict? Here's the problem with worldliness. It always results in human conflict. But it's worse than that. It results in heavenly conflict, which is where we're at today. Watch verse 4. You adulteresses. You adulteresses, do you not know That friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The desires for the world, which have become the source of our satisfaction. You have 1 John chapter 2. The things that are in the world, verse 15. The lust of the flesh, that's fulfilling your human physical passions, gratifications. I'm a human being, I'm born hungry. Your little one wakes up hungry. You wake up hungry for satisfaction, gratification, the desires, the strong desires of your flesh. The things that are in the world are the passions that it promises will fulfill my flesh. Physical, sexual, the lust of the eyes. That has to do with possessions. 
It has to do with acquiring things. If I have that, if I can obtain that, that desire. I've arrived. I've achieved it. And the boastful pride of life has to do with positions. I'm somebody. I have a title. I have a degree. I have a position. Listen, in you and in the world in which we live, passions for satisfaction, physical, sexual, fleshly. The desire to acquire possessions and the appetite to elevate in terms of positions. If the world is the source of your solutions for the gratification of your passions, your appetite for possessions, and your desire for position. James 1, James 4, 4 says, you're an adulteress. Now listen, the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Each word is God-breathed. And what this little section is meant to do is to calibrate you as it relates to reality. Because we are all prone to chasing satisfaction in the world in which we live. Multi-millions and billions of dollars are invested to promote, if you can own that, if you can go there, if you can have her, if you can acquire that, man... And it stimulates and it offers satisfaction, gratification, solution, and elevation. And if you buy into that path, the reality is, from God's point of view, we betray, we betray the covenant relationship that we are in with God. God chooses a word that is meant to inflame our understanding that this business that is so natural to our humanity, and it is, nobody in the room, including the teacher, is unaware of the appetite to chase things by way of natural desire in the world in which I live through the means the world provides. You know why? Because I can control that. That's the idea. I can't control God. He may not give it, but I can go get it. I don't have to wait on it. I can manipulate for it. God says, when you enter into that status, that mindset, in His view, you become an adulteress, unfaithful, betrayal by seeking satisfaction with an illegitimate partner. Isaiah 54, 5, For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. Israel, covenant people of God, you have a husband. It's your father, it's your creator, it's your provider. Listen to God's statement, God's description to Israel when they betrayed that trust. Jeremiah 3, the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king. So this is Jeremiah saying this is what God said to me. 
to tell the people of God because of their behavior in the world in which they were living. In the days of Josiah, here's God. Have you seen what faithless Israel did? Not faithful, but unfaithful Israel. She went up on, an, on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. She was an adulteress. And I thought, this is God, after she had done all these things, she will return to me. In other words, she'll kind of sow her oats, and then she'll realize there's no life here. She'll come back to me. And he said, but she did not return. And besides that, Israel, the ten tribes of the north, influenced the two southern tribes, Judah, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So Judah, the southern kingdom, sees the idolatrous, harlot, adulterous behavior of the northern kingdom who betrayed their trust with God to pursue idolatrous worship. So Judah saw it. And God said, and I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce, because adultery is a legitimate reason for divorce. Yet her treacherous sister, despite that divorce, she didn't fear. But she went and was a harlot also, and it came about because of the lightness of her harlotry that she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Okay, obviously it's not physical adultery. I'm talking about spiritual betrayal. God considers himself a husband. God sees his people. God is the Lord and husband of every soul that is his. And in her revolt from him and, and love for sin, her acts are those of an adulterous woman. Not physically unfaithful, spiritually unfaithful. Which is why this summary and the end of Jeremiah chapter 3, and this is graphic. Surely as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, says Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Now listen, this is not easy on the ear. But it's pregnant with reality. Its pathos is palpable. If you've ever been the witness of a betrayal in the home between a covenant couple, you know how heart-wrenching that reality is. And God says, this is what's happening to me when you seek favor and life from the world that is adversarial to me. This is no small thing. And if you befriend the world, which is the source of these satisfactions, you're hostile toward me. Yea, you're my enemy. Not because I've become your enemy. You've become mine. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 2. And uh, I want to color this out a little bit for you in in a parallel passage. Because I want you to feel it. See, what I'm picking up on here is, do you not know? It's almost like, have you forgotten? Surely you know that you're in a covenant relationship with God. You're not just your father. Christ is your groom. You're the bride of Christ. There's an intimacy here. There's an expectation. There's a a betrothal and a reality here that... You need to remember, do you not know? 
And I take you to Jeremiah chapter 2, because in Jeremiah chapter 2, you can feel the pathos of how this feels from God's point of view when he reflects on this pattern of behavior, listen to me, because of abandonment and betrayal. So if this is our condition or my condition, it's not the first time. You're going to see a flavor of it here in Jeremiah chapter 2. And in chapter 1, verse 16, God says, I'll pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken me. That's abandonment. And have offered sacrifices to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. That's betrayal. Now, chapter 2. This is the first of 13 oracles in the book of Jeremiah. An oracle is an extended section, reflection, homily, if you will, where the prophet is calling God's people to see it God's way and respond to it. So verse 2, this is the word of Yahweh, verse 2, chapter 2, Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Yahweh. Now he's going to rehearse what he sees and what he feels. God talking about his people. I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth. The word devotion is the Hebrew word has said. It's covenant love. It's our covenant love, our devotion, your devotion for me. I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals. That's vows. Your vows of faithfulness until death do us part. You've been to a wedding. You're following after me in the wilderness. So we made a covenant promise, verbalized it with betrothals. I remember when you did that with me. And I remember how you followed me like a husband would, a wife would follow a husband. You're following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. Israel was holy. Now look up for a minute. Holy is exclusively God, set apart by God for God. Israel was set apart for me like a wife is for a husband. Israel was holy to the Lord, exclusively His, the first of His harvest. All who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them. In other words, I'm a jealous God, and if somebody partakes of what is uniquely mine, there will be consequences, and there were. Verse 4, hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says Yahweh. This is what Yahweh feels. This is what God feels about that previous reality and how he treated them and how they responded to him. Verse 5, thus says Yahweh, what injustice did your fathers find in me? that they went afar from me and walked after emptiness and became empty. Why? What did I do? What dishonorable thing as the covenant husband did I do that you abandoned this relationship after the promises? What injustice? Verse 6, they did not say, where is the Lord? They didn't say, God left, he abandoned us who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of deep darkness, through a land that no one crossed and where no man dwelt. I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things. Nobody's saying, I abandoned you. 
So what did I do wrong? What justifies you abandoning me? Verse 7, but you came and defiled my land and my inheritance. You made an abomination. Here's an indictment of the three leadership groups of Israel. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. And the rulers who transgressed against me and the prophets prophesied by Baal. Your leaders abandoned me. They misrepresented me. They misled you. You walked, look at the end of verse 8, you walked after things that did not profit. Jeremiah, you stand in front of the people and you say to the people, what happened to us? You promised, I promised. I led, I provided, I cared for you, and you abandoned me. Your leaders abandoned me. And you chased after things that are soap bubbles. They're vain. They're empty. What happened? So now we're going to court, okay? Because that's what verse 9 begins. Therefore, I will yet contend. It's a legal term. We're now in the court. I will yet contend with you, declares Yahweh, and with your son's sons, I'll contend. Here's my first witness. From from cross to the coastlands of Katim, that's west. Go all the way, cross over to the lands of Katim, all the way to the west. Send to Kedar and observe closely. Go all the way to the east and see if there has been such a thing as this. There's nobody who does this. Verse 11, has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Who does this? Even pagan people don't do this. We have an issue that we need to resolve. Because there's a betrayal of trust a betrayal of promise, an abandonment and a betrayal, listen to me, that's unjustified. And how does God respond? And this is that whole setup is an expansion in the Old Testament on the word adulteresses and what it does to God, this chasing the world for a satisfaction that he has both promised and will provide. Look at verse 12. Be appalled. Oh, heavens. Watch the explanatory and shudder. Be very desolate. This is like divine consternation. It's like the heavens just ripping and and rumbling as if the Lord is saying, this impacts me to the point where it's appalling. And I want the heavens to display the deep emotional rift that exists in me because of the choices that you're making. And here's the choice. This is the bottom line, verse 13. This is worldliness. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. That's abandonment. And and I'm the fountain of living water, so I'm the source. I'm the place where living life comes from. The fountain of living waters, watch this, evil number two, to hew for themselves cisterns. Now, a cistern is a water pot. Cisterns catch runoff water. 
Cisterns hold water. It rains, it runs, it collects in cisterns, water pots. Now, what kind of water is in a water pot? Dirty water. It started fresh, but if it's running through the ground, you ever see that experience? It's muddy water. That water, you have dug for yourselves alternative sources of satisfaction. You've abandoned the real source, and you've created this alternative source, not pure water, but runoff water. Oh, and if that's not bad enough, verse 13, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So not only are you catching something that's dirty from running over the soil into your cistern, you're trading pure versus less pure or very impure. Look, my dog finds it acceptable to drink water out of a mud puddle. I mean, it's shocking. Do you not know what's in that? Don't care. I care. When I uh, played high school football, it was back in the days when they restricted water breaks. It was in the Stone Age. <laughs> and you'd have this extended time of practice, and then there would be the water break. And in New Jersey, football practice started in August. We'd do two-a-days, and man, we started at six, and it got hot, and you'd come back and do more. So you're sweating, you're working, and then there's the water break, which is not just a break from the training, the exercise, the hitting, and the plays, and all the things you're preparing for. But you get to take a break and you get to get a drink. And trust me, if you're ever, anybody lived that life, you're thirsty. And, there, and I just saw this. I was back in Jersey in, in May and I went by my old football field. And by the way, things shrink when you go back. <laughs> I looked at that and I thought, man, that seemed like such a big deal. And it's just a little tiny football stadium. But the, there, there's a spigot, a, a, a metal pipe comes up out of the ground, still there with a faucet at the top that doesn't have one of these handles where you spin it, but one of these where you, you tilt it. And the, and the coach would stand at the water spout, and you, you just had whatever he deemed necessary. So you put your head under it, and he would open it, and then he would close it. I said, it's the Stone Ages. You go to jail for that now. But let me tell you what, let me tell you what Harry did. He took the sweaty football helmet, that just came off my head. And while he was turning it on, I was catching the runoff. You know why? I needed more than he was going to give me, and I was willing to drink it out of a sweaty helmet. And the helmet has holes in it. So after you drank your good stuff, you took the dirty stuff and drank it as fast as you could because it couldn't hold it. Are you feeling that? That's Israel saying, I can't get enough from you, God. I'm going to find alternative sources. And you know what God says of that? I don't get it. Why would you do that? I don't abandon you. I don't betray you. I walked you. I led you. Now listen, Christian, you're in a covenant relationship with God that has all the promises possible for a human being. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. You have not because you ask not. If he did not withhold his only son, will he, not, will he deny us something? Will he not freely give us all things? Why are you abandoning me? And God says, 
I want the heavens to contort because this is how painful this is to me. Adultery is painful to the betrayed spouse. God says, I'm the betrayed spouse. When you seek it from something that doesn't have it because you're so desperate to get it, when I've promised it, I'm heartbroken over it. Adultery. Friendship with the world is adultery in God's view. Go back to uh, James chapter 4. Departure from the living and true God is spiritual adultery. What have these Jewish Christians done to break their marriage vows to God? They've become dependent on the world. Friendship with the world. They become a friend of the world. As a consequence, verse 4 says, they are hostile toward God. Now, the way the Greek grammar reads here is God has become the object of the hostility. So God's not mad at you. You're being hurtful to him. You've become hostile toward him. In what way have we become hostile? By abandoning him. You've become adversarial to him. You've become an enemy. The word hostility or enmity has to do with hatefulness. It's being hurtful, willfully hurtful. Enemy means you're adversarial. So you're hurtful, hateful, and adversarial. Why? Because you have a friendship that you should not have. Let's talk friendship. I want to break this down a little bit. Friendship involves phileo, phile. Philia is the word from Philadelphia. We get city of brotherly love. This is affection. This is community. Let's talk friendship involves common interest. Friendship involves common concerns. We can be football buddies. We can be car buddies. We can be business buddies. We just have common interests. Friendship involves common interests, common affections, shared experiences. You're friends with people, good friends with people that you share experiences with. Friendship is just not we both like motorcycles. We actually share an experience that involves motorcycles. We're friends, and our, friends revol- our friendship revolves around things that we share. We have affection. Here's part heart of the word. We have an affinity for, a fondness for, an attachment to. We have affection for the world. Support, sympathy, and help. We have a concern for our friend. We're willing to sympathize, engage, and help, and even sacrifice. We're on the same side if we're friends. We're allies. The world has to do with a... It's the word cosmos, from which we get the word cosmetic. Cosmos is a system. It's a structure. Cosmetic is a system, a design, decoration, if you will, designed to produce an outcome. At least I think that's why women use cosmetics. (laughs) It's designed. You don't just 
do like your little daughter would if she gets into your makeup and stuff. She just applies it. You're, you're applying it with strategy and structure, a design, a system to decorate in order to accomplish an outcome. The world is a cosmos. It's a structure. It's a design. It's made up to accomplish a purpose. Cosmos is not about the natural order. It's not talking about creation, trees, mountains, sun. It's not talking about what God made. The world is a construct, an organized system, a structure, if you will, governed by the God of this age, the God of this world. The enemy rebelled. And the enemy, because of Adam forfeiting his authority, remember Adam, when he sinned, forfeited his dominion in a way that he had it exclusively over creation. He forfeited that to the enemy. So Satan has Lucifer, the fallen angel, the usurper of heaven's throne, and his one-third of the heavenly host has installed a structure, a system. That's why he's the god of this world, this system. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5, 19. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in high places. The government over the system. The system is structures governed by the God of this world and designed to diminish God and to actually revolt against the desires of God, the goals of God. The world system is designed to elevate the kingdom of darkness and its goals in contradiction against the kingdom of God and God's goals. So when he says you're a lover of the world, think of it this way. You're a lover of a system governed by the God of this world, the enemy of heaven, the enemy of the church, the enemy of God. You have a relationship with that system. And that system is a system that promotes happiness apart from God. It's built around man's ability to satisfy himself. It's a system whose music extols happiness apart from God. A system whose media exploits sex apart from God. A system whose government reflects life outside of the law of God. It affects entertainment, government, philosophy, literature, business, medicine, religion, science, games, ethics, media, and the arts. The God of this world is a deceiver of this world in order to accomplish His will, not God's will. And the world is His system. So when you look at government, you need to understand it's influenced by powers you cannot see for purposes for which you do not agree. And when you are a companion of that system, you betray your husband, your groom, Christ. When you look to that system for its satisfaction, when you look to that system, which is deceptive. I was at a motorcycle shop this past week, and they had a big screen with some bass... uh, 
program, sports program where some, somebody's really good at bass fishing. And um, I had nothing else to watch. But it was amazing, the lures he picked and what caused the fish to bite. And the lures, he, he's talking about, watch this. He said, I'm going to put this thing that looks like a little fish and it's going to wiggle and it's got this movement and, and they show you and they've got the cameras under the water and in the water and you can see this large mouse bass and it looks like a little fish. I'm going to have a meal today. I'm going to be gratified. It looks so real. And then, then he went to one spot he was fishing in. It was muddy water. So the fish can't see the little fish or the lure that looks like a little fish. So he puts this little disc on the back of it that flutters. So they can't see it, but they can hear it. So you're watching this lure go through the water. and You go, that's a fish, not a fish. And the big mouth bass thinking, man, today's my day. That's the world. It's a lure that looks real with a hook. That's James 1. Drawn out of our own desires and enticed. That's the lore. James 1, 13 and following. Talks about the temptation that comes from the world. The world is a system designed to deceive you into believing it possesses what it is you long for. And when you become friends with it, you companion with it, you buddy up to it, you look to it, You're drinking out of a cistern that can hold no water. And that desperate thirst is being sought in a space that cannot satisfy. It's a polluted space. And you feel like, well, it's better than nothing. And God's going, I have a fountainhead of living water. Drink freely. Drink abundantly. To the woman at the well, you'll never thirst again. Well, then give me that water I have. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Whoever wishes, I want you to look at the word wish. You see it? It's a a Greek word which means you intend to. You're making a choice. You actually have come to believe Your will is intent and purposed to acquire from the alternative source, the illicit source, what it is you believe you need. And when you do that, you're labeled something. Harry Walls is now the enemy of God. Does that sober anybody besides me? You say, uh, help me understand this. Listen, if I live in the Ukraine and I find somebody with a t-shirt with a silhouette of Putin and I go into their house and they've got Russian paraphernalia, they're listening to Russian national folk songs, I'm a Ukrainian. They're bombing my country. They're destroying my family and my people. If I go into somebody's home and they have those assets on display and they're promoting those pictures and those ideologies, they've got Lenin and Stalin on the wall. What am I going to feel if I'm a Ukrainian? You are an enemy of my country. You're my enemy. 
It's like that. When you listen to the world's music, which promotes life without God, when you buy into the world's media and all the entertainment that's saturated with values, controversial, no. Adversarial, yes. When you dress like it, when you look like it, when you talk like it, and when you pursue it, God says, you're my enemy. You represent my enemy. Look at verse 5, and I'll just quote it. Thank you for the extra time, teammates, this morning. But I want you to look at verse 5. Here's another question. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? Because this is the end of the thought. New American Standard says this. Do you think the Scripture speaks to no purpose? And by the way, there's no specific verse in the Old Testament that says this. So when he says, do you think the Scripture, it's general, generally. When you look at the content of the Old Testament and the revealed will of God and the way of God, this is what you're going to see. Do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? New American Standard, capital H, He, that would be God, jealously desires the, capital S, Spirit, which He has made to dwell in us. Right? That's how my Bible, this is a very hard verse. The ESV translates it one way. God desires, He, big H, desires the Spirit, little s, that is in me. He jealously yearns from the little spirit, human spirit that's in me. God loves me as a human being, and he jealously desires relationship with me. That's the ESV. The NASB, which is I just translated, and the Legacy Standard Bible says, he, God, desires the Holy Spirit, which he has placed within me. He has this affection for the Spirit of God. He's placed in me when I became a Christian. Don't you know that he has this desire for either my human spirit or for the Holy Spirit? And so when you betray this trust, you violate the heart of God and his passion for you or for the spirit that he's put in you. And here's a third way to take it, which actually is the way I'm going to take it. The the subject is not God yearning jealously for my spirit, but it's my spirit, verse 5, because I want to translate this literally. So here's how it sounds if you're translating it literally. With envy, no subject provided. With envy yearns the pneuma, the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. King James reads this way, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy. That's the third way to take it. I think it's the preferable way, and I know that's dangerous because I love the New American Standard, and I certainly love Abner and the guys who translated the LSB. Let me tell you why I think it's the latter. Because the word envy is always used negatively. If you yearn to envy, you're yearning for something dark, and God doesn't do dark. What is dark is the human spirit within me that has a propensity to yearn and desire and to envy. That's my problem. 
And that's the explanation as to why, if you're going to ask the question, why do I do this if I'm a Christian? Because I have an Adamic fallen nature that can't wait to find life where it isn't, and I'm envious to have it, even if it's not coming from God's. That's my problem. Now, the good news is it doesn't matter whether you take it, this is how God feels and why he feels that way because he feels like the devotion of the human spirit he's put within you or the relationship with the Holy Spirit that is within you is being violated. Therefore, you ought to think this matters. Do you not think the Scripture speaks with no purpose? God has a passion for your spirit. He has a passion for his Holy Spirit, and you're jeopardizing that devotion relationship. Or answering this question, what's wrong with me? Because I'll bet you're in this room saying, I can relate to all of this. I just don't want to do this. Why do you do this? Because of the battle with the spirit that has been damaged by the fall, who has a constant pattern of pursuing enviously with yearning satisfaction from the world in which it lives rather than the God who promises to give. So you can answer the question why this bothers God so much or you can ask why I'm so prone to this so much. Both are legitimate. I'm taking the last one. But good people, not me, take it the other way. Can you read the first statement in verse 6? Verse 6 begins with an adversative conjunction. But. That means that despite this situation, what does God do? He gives static present today, every day. It's eternally gives. What? Greater grace. Greater than what? My propensity to chase satisfaction that's adultery to God. My propensity to deny God the affection and intimacy He desires with me or with the Spirit He has placed in me. He gives greater grace. You know what grace is? Unmerited favor. You know what grace is? Help from heaven. You know what grace is? It's not spiritual push-ups. It's God giving you a gift that you need to overcome a problem that really matters to Him and you desperately need. Isn't that good news? God gives greater grace. So yeah, this is my battle. Yeah, it really hurts heaven. Yeah, I need to consider this. Do you not know? Yeah, I know. But I need help. And God gives help for that. You know how? Do you want to know how he does it? Got to come back next week. Because that's what the next section is. How you get the greater grace. Can you say amen? Amen. All right. So this matters to God. Therefore, it needs to matter to us. Father, thank you for the opportunity. I know we've examined this in detail in so many different ways. I just pray that you will enliven and sensitize our heart to see reality the way it is. Not to discount it, not to justify it, not to deny it, but to own it. Lord, help us to know what it really is when we exchange you for something not you. When we rely on our own means and methods 
when we seek satisfaction in a world that's hostile toward you, is run by the enemy, help us to know it. Help us to calibrate accordingly. And help us to care. Give us the grace we need. I ask it for us all so that we can live well, love well, and enjoy the peace that flows out of contentment that rests in you. You're the greatest. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.